In a moment, we will read the first commandment, which is printed on your service sheet. But first, we are going to read what Moses said to the Israelites 40 years later in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 to 40. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 to 40. It's on your church Bible, page 183. Ask now about the formal days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. From heaven, he made you hear his voice to disciple you. On earth, he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words from out of the fire. Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and by his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land to give it to you and for your inheritance. As it is today, acknowledge and take to heart this day and that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. And the words from, from the inside of the service sheet, Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 to 3. Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 to 3. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're looking today at that first of the Ten Commandments. And uh, the question I want us to think about to start with is, how do we know how to behave? How do we know how to behave? Pretty much every culture in human history has had a set of beliefs, a religion, if you like, that tells us what's right and what's wrong. We don't always call it a religion, of course. We might be very convinced atheists. But even the loudest voices in our current culture have laws about what's right and wrong. We're still punished for our blasphemy. Every culture has kind of blasphemy laws. It's just that uh, these days, the blasphemy laws are different. They're about not saying the N-word or, or not saying that a woman is an adult human female or whatever it might be, these controversial issues of our current age. But how do we know? How do we know what's right? Where do we get those values? Maybe we think it's obvious. 
We appeal to conscience, just whatever my heart says is right. And it's easy to assume that everyone else's conscience will say the same thing, that everyone's heart will tell them the same thing, and that if their heart doesn't, it's just wrong. Maybe we assume that there are fundamental human values that are reflected in the rules of all the major religions. People sometimes say to me, it doesn't really matter which religion I follow because they all have the same fundamental values. We end up in pretty much the same place anyway. If that's the way you think, then the Ten Commandments will come as a bit of a shock. The Ten Commandments are the foundation for Jewish and Christian ethics, maybe the most famous rules in the world, but were you shocked by the first commandment as Lee read it just a minute ago? You shall have no other gods before me, says the Lord. Sounds exclusive, doesn't it? Personal, petty maybe. Who cares about our worship so long as we just do the right thing. But the Ten Commandments start where they are because morality is relational. Morality is relational. God starts by saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Morality starts with relationship with God. Jesus said the same thing in the New Testament, didn't he? Maybe you know it. When um, he was asked which was the most important commandment, he said, the most important is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second commandment is this, love your neighbour as yourself. That's his summary of God's law. Morality is first and foremost relational. And in fact, that's how the 10 commandments, not the 15 commandments, the 10 commandments themselves are structured. The first few commandments are all about relationship with God. No other gods, no images of God, no taking the name of the Lord in vain and so on. And it's only then that we get onto the things we more often think about as God's laws, um, rules about how we show love to others. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, all those sorts of laws. We'll come on to those later on in the autumn. But the starting point is relationship with God. You shall have no other gods before me, he says. How are you doing on that command? You see, when someone asks you whether you're a good person, you might say, well, I've never murdered anyone. I don't steal. Except maybe where no one's going to notice and uh, they can afford it. But the first question you need to ask is, how's my relationship with the Lord? We love to justify ourselves, don't we? Maybe you're doing it even now as I speak. You might think of yourself as a very ethical person. You might do your recycling and stop eating meat. Maybe you even drive a Tesla. But how's your relationship with God? You might support all the right causes. You might use all the right pronouns. You might confess your privilege. But how's your relationship with God? Morality is relational, first and foremost. 
The Ten Commandments are a sort of contract, a covenant between us and God. One of the closest parallels in the Bible is a marriage covenant. And maybe that helps us to see why, marriage, why, why um, morality is relational. Maybe the first rule of a marriage is that it should be exclusive. You shall have no other women. You shall have no other men besides me. It's no good saying, well, I'm the perfect husband. I bring home the bacon, pay for things. I put out the bins. I don't stay out drinking with my mates. What more could you want? I'm the perfect husband. If the answer is, but you never speak to me. You never accept my kisses. You, you don't even look at me. In fact, you're always carousing with other women. Well, you know that that marriage is in deep trouble. And just like marriage, morality is relational. How's your relationship with the Lord? Well, you might say that's all very well, Richard, but why is it this God that I need to worship? Well, that's because of who our God is and what he does for us, which is what no other God does or can do. Let's look at the alternatives. The false gods are idols first. Idols, false gods, bring slavery. We were made for worship, for relationship with our creator. And if we drift from that relationship, we don't find that we end up worshiping nothing. We end up worshiping, well, it could be anything, bit by bit, other things, often very good things, will spring up to fill that void of what's most important, what's ultimate in our lives and become our gods. We might think of ourselves as completely secular, no religion at all, but inevitably we will have something that's ultimate in our lives. If it's not a god or gods in the kind of organized religion sense, then we'll start to make gods of whatever's most important to us. It might be a particular relationship or the pursuit of a particular relationship. It might be our children or even our animals. Or maybe money, career, sports. An idol or a false god can be almost anything. In fact, the pursuit of satisfaction through those things means that ultimately we make ourselves our gods. But if we don't have the creator god in his right place, the other good things in our lives fill that void and start to become ultimate for us. Good things start to become God things. You can identify your idols, your false gods, as you start to ask questions like this. What do I daydream about? Or what do I have nightmares about? What, what do I catastrophize about? What would I love to gain? Or what would I hate to lose? What would those who know me best say are the most important things in my life? What would I sacrifice everything else for? Now again, those things may be very good things, but if we would answer anything other than our Lord, those things have become our idols, our gods, so they're in danger of turning into them. 
And although morality is relational, the Bible often points out um, that our idols are often inanimate. They're incapable of relationship. They're deaf and blind very often. They can't love us back. More than that, though, those often very good things can't bear the weight we place on them. They will always disappoint us. How many people have lived their lives for their children only to find that they've stifled them or driven them away? How many people have lived their lives for their career only to find themselves disappointed? You can run through all of my list of good things or whatever your idols are and find that they always disappoint. But it's not even just that. You see, our idols, our false gods, actually enslave us. Have you noticed that? Our gods expect us to serve them. Typically, um, religions do this by loading all sorts of expectations and burdens on us, rituals we need to perform, sacrifices we need to make, um, things we need to do to try to make our gods happy with us. Other religions all do that in one way or another. Even some distorted versions of Christianity end up like this, and we need to look out for them. But even if we don't follow a formalised religion, whatever our idols are, they will demand our service. We pour ourselves into our career or serving our kids, pursuing our relationship or even following our sports team. Everything else in our lives suffers as a result. Our lives get out of balance because we've made good things into God things. And just like with an an addiction, we can become enslaved to the very thing that's promised us freedom. Johnny shared already um, the harm um, that um, substances can do, have done in his life. I know that a number of other members of our church family have experienced the same thing. The very thing that we thought would fulfill us ends up emptying us, leaving us dependent and enslaved and exhausted. So why is the God of the Bible any different? Well, the introduction, the prologue to the Ten Commandments tells us. God says, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Idols bring slavery, but God brings freedom. It's easy to think that the Ten Commandments and the other laws of the Old Testament are are sets of rules that are given just like in any religion to try to earn the favour of our gods, but that's completely the wrong way round. They're the rules for life for those who have already been treated with favour by our gods. The typical covenants in the ancient Near East, in the context where the Ten Commandments were given, the typical covenant would start with the, the credentials, the power of the, uh, of the emperor who was making the covenant, dictating his terms. I, the emperor of such and such, have conquered you. Therefore, this is how you, my subjects, must behave. 
But the Ten Commandments are shockingly different. They aren't given in terms of obedience to a conquering power. They're the terms of love for a liberator. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The Lord your God who rescued you, who freed you from your enemies. And that's the emphasis of our longer reading this morning. It's taken a while, but let's go back there now. Deuteronomy chapter 4, it's on page 183. This is Moses speaking again at the end of the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness as he prepares to remind the next generation of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy means um, second law. It's the second time in the Bible uh, that the law of Moses, including the Ten Commandments, is stated after it was first given in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Deuteronomy, second giving of the law, chapter 4, verse 32. Moses says, ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? Has any God ever done any of these things? The answer is obvious. The answer is what? No. No other God has ever done a thing like this. And so, verse 35, you were shown these things so that you may know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. God is the unique rescuing God of his people. He has displayed his nature, his love and goodness through the events of Bible history. The Bible is the story of liberation, of rescue by one who is outside of and beyond this observable universe, who has shown himself to us through his powerful acts in history. He is the relational God. Verse 36, Moses goes on to say, from heaven he made you hear his voice to discipline you on earth he showed you his great fire and you heard his words from out of the fire. Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their lands to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. He is the relational God. As we see those mighty acts of liberation and acts of relational favour, we need to get to the point of verse 39. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below there is no other. Verse 
For us today in the 21st century, we've seen even mightier acts of rescue than those he showed the Israelites. We live after the act of rescue that that act of rescue was always pointing towards. A rescue not just from a foreign nation, from Egypt, but from the ruler of this present age, the devil himself. A rescue not just through the sacrifice of a Passover lamb, but through the death of the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ, who gave his life at the cross once for all. The rescue that didn't simply give new life to a helpless people, but that brought eternal life, resurrection life, beginning the moment Jesus himself rose from the dead on the third day, never to die again. This is our God, the one we worship and depend on to the exclusion of all gods. When we come to this great God by faith, he puts all other good things in their right place. We know the goodness of the things we're tempted to make into gods, but we realise that they're only good because the one rescuing God made them so. They gain their relative right value. We become better husbands or wives, more contented single people, more better parents to our children, better employees, more diligent workers, when we know that what is ultimate is the God who made all good things. Our God is the great giver. He frees us from the need to try to save ourselves or to satisfy ourselves through our own efforts. This is why we rightly worship him alone. And so the Ten Commandments are not restrictive rules that simply enslave or make us guilty. The New Testament calls them the law of freedom. They're rules of relationship. And we're all invited into this relationship this morning. We've seen the mark of relationship already. Johnny at his baptism, symbolically entering that relationship of new life as a child of God. It may be that you've enjoyed that relationship for many, many years, or maybe you're completely new to these things. The invitation is the same for all of us. Come to know the liberating God, the one who freely gives everything we need, the one in whom alone salvation and satisfaction is found. We'd love to help you in finding or deepening that relationship. Maybe you need to join that Christian basics course that's starting in a couple of weeks' time. Maybe if you're more established in the faith, join in with a regular small group each week to learn from the scriptures, to encourage and be encouraged by others. When we struggle to keep the Ten Commandments or we feel constrained by them or, or simply conscious of our own sin, the remedy is the same, to look at and to dwell on the God who liberates us, the one who brings freedom. Often our hearts can be hard. 
We can know that this is what we should be doing. We can want to be doing it. And yet our hearts are hard and led astray, constantly distracted and attracted by other things. I found it helpful recently to read something that the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said. He likened the impact of God's goodness on our hard hearts to the effect of the autumn sun on a snowy and frosty landscape. He said, I cannot liken the warmth of God's love to anything I know of better than the snow which melts in the sun. You wake up one morning, all the trees are festooned with snowy reeds, while down below upon the grounds, the snow lies in a white sheet over everything. Lo, the sun has risen. Its beams shed a genial warmth. And in a few hours, where is the snow? It has passed away. If you had hired a thousand carts and horses and machines to sweep it away, it could not have been more effectually removed. It is passed away. That is what the Lord does in the new creation. His love shines on the soul. His grace renews us and the old things pass away as a matter of course. Where his blessed face beams with grace and truth, as the sun with warmth and light, he dissolves the bands of sin's long frost and brings on the spring of grace with newness of buds and flowers. God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods besides me. Let's pray for that now, shall we? Our Father God, we thank you and praise you that you are the great rescuing God, the God of relationship, the God of giving, the God of freedom. We pray, Lord God, that we would know that freedom ourselves, that we would love you and long to know you better. Please melt the frost of our hard hearts and drive us on in your service, we pray. Please root out the idols of our hearts, the things that we trust and depend on, the things that we sacrifice for, that may be very good things, but that crowd out the greatest. Father, please would you be unique and exclusive in our hearts and teach us to live rightly in relation to everything else in your good world. In Jesus' name.